Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are Solution Architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and Deep Tech Dives in topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 82 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Shai. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here, Shane. We have some really good stuff we're going to dive into today. Super excited to have you back here, and absolutely it is interesting. So today, in this themed episode of AWS Tech Chat, we're going to go back to basics and talk you through one of the most common set of listener feedback and you know provide you the usual AWS announcements. Now, I would often joke you know, with customers with my family, et cetera. You know, in buzzword bingo, in IT these days, it's all about containers and Kubernetes. So that's right, folks. We're going to go back today and we're going to do a theme show on containers. And yes, you would be right in thinking, haven't you done this before? Well, sort of. So the spectrum of containers, as we know, is huge. And today we're going to make this show not just about ECS and EKS, as we've covered this before. We're going further back. Yeah, let's say you're you're in operations or, or maybe you're a developer out there, you've been wanting to make the jump into containers and you just really don't know where to start. This is really what the show's for. Um, it, it would also go as far as to say the show's for those, maybe like if you're like me, that maybe you have an infrastructure background um, and you're brand new containers. I really find that as an infrastructure engineer for so many years, I'll often correlate um, containers to VMs. That's not really That's not really accurate and there's really so much more to them. So really for that reason, I'm just excited to jump into this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people make that relationship between you know, containers and VMs. And you're right, there is so much more. You know, and a funny thing here, Shai, you know, as prepping for this show, I came across a Dilbert comic that, you know, kind of hit this conversation out of the ballpark. So, you know, I'll kind of describe it here. So you've got Dilbert's boss saying, hey, you know, I need to know why moving our app to the cloud didn't automatically solve our problems. And then he says, you wouldn't let me re-architect the app to be cloud native. And he says, you know, just put it in containers. Uh, you can't solve every problem by just saying saying techie things. And he finishes a comic by saying Kubernetes. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that um, is absolutely hilarious. So look, before we get into this today, how about a quick lap of news that is the world of AWS? Yeah, let's jump to that. So uh, a few recent events that have passed since we spoke in the last episodes. Uh, summits are back. Well, kind of um, at this stage, they are all still virtual but look and means that they are more inclusive and easier to consume. Uh, May is actually going to be a really busy month. This kicks off a lot of the summits we have in many local regions uh, from the Americas uh, through to Australia and Japan. Stay tuned for more announcements, but remember, folks, these events are free. Um, So I really suggest you do spend time and invest in yourself um, and really sharpen your saw using those summits. Okay, so in terms of summits here, we have the AWS Summit in America's in May, August this year, and some APAC summits in May of 2021. Region-wise, we're at 25 regions, and that number is increasing with five more announced, and one of those is in Melbourne, Australia, my home city, which is great. On the CloudFront side, our ever-growing content delivery network continues to grow, getting bits to your end users faster. So we're now at 225-plus edge locations, In the last month, we added locations in Jakarta, Indonesia, and viewers served by this region can now expect up to 30% improvement in first byte latency. On the other side of the world, we launched a new edge location in Croatia. Now, this new edge location will provide users as much as 14% reduction in first byte latency. 
So, you know, great stuff here. Okay, so news done. Now, we can tell a lot about the audience here on Tech Chat. You know, our podcasting platform collects generic metrics about you, the listener, around device usage, geography, and so on. Now, there's a lot, obviously, that it can't tell us. You know, we know you're all passionate technologists, but for many of you, AWS may be the only thing you know. And for others out there, you know, you're just getting started on your journey into modern IT architectures. Now, containers are more than a buzzword in 2021. They often strike that balance between control in running your own compute and the flexibility that serverless brings. But really, how do you get yourself started if containers aren't in your wheelhouse? They can be, you know, a little bit intimidating. I know I, you know, found this intimidating when making that jump from virtual machines, you know, from the world of Hyper-V, VMware, and so on, into the world of containers. So in today's episode, we're going to go on a bit of a journey around containers and, you know, take you back to where you need to be to get started in this new world of compute. But before we do this, Shai, you know, what exactly is a container? Yeah, so let's jump into that because I think this is really where we need to, to start and level set everybody. So think of it this way, right? A, a container is going to be a standard unit of software that's going to package up your code. It's going to include all the dependencies so that the application runs quickly and reliably, regardless of the computing environment, right? The Docker container image is a lightweight, standalone executable package of software, and it's going to include everything that you need, right? It's going to have the code. It'll have the runtime in there, maybe uh, system tools or agents that you need, additional libraries that you might need, um, and then the kind of specific settings that you might need for your application as well. Container images really become containers themselves at runtime. And in the case of Docker containers, images become containers when they run on the Docker engine. The Docker engine is available both for Linux and Windows-based applications. Containerized software will always run the same, regardless of the infrastructure underneath it or the environment that it's running under. So if it's dev, stage, production, on-prem, cloud, it's always going to be the same. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's really important here. You know, I just remember in the past how often you would, you know, working with developers and, you know, the common line, it works on my dev machine, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't work in production yeah. or it doesn't work in staging. You know, containers eliminate these problems. So that's, you know, one, uh, you know, off the bat here. I don't know if that's an Australian term, off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's one point, you know, it's one positive for containers straight away. So look, why are containers all of a sudden becoming the new normal? The benefits become clear when you start getting your hands dirty. You know, there's less overhead because containers require less resources than traditional hardware virtual machines, you know, because they don't include an operating system in images. And, you know, and I've seen, you know, read articles out there, you know, typically you can bin pack a host three times more when running containers and say virtual machines. So, you know, that's increased efficiency, you know, return on investment of your hardware and so on. Um, and look, and I think another gain is in the increased portability that Shai mentioned before. Being able to run an application in a container that can be deployed easily to multiple different operating systems and hardware platforms is quite empowering to many teams and removes, you know, a lot of the overhead in managing interdependencies. They don't include an operating system, as Shai mentioned before. That means they're a lot smaller. So when you're auto scaling and, you know, scaling out, you know, they can stand up a lot faster. Um, this abstraction also means that it's a more consistent operations model. You know, teams know that applications in containers will run the same regardless of where they're deployed. And they can also patch and scale them quicker since containers tend to only hold the core requirements of an application. So this lightweight nature, you know, yields, as we mentioned before, that high density of applications running on the same hardware versus virtual machines. 
And finally, you know, since workloads running in containers are, you know, commonly the smallest unit of operation for that application, it means developers are only working on a small portion of code at a time. So smaller changes and reduced blast radius in case something goes wrong. So Shane, I mean, it sounds like you, you got some experience here, right? Probably hands-on stuff with, with some of the PLC stuff you've done in the past. When did you start down this journey? So look, for me, it was probably around 2013. You know, I was working for a software company in Australia and, you know, I was reading about this new technology in ThoughtWorks Tech Radar. And I heard some of the developers talk about it more so as a means of quickly spinning up development environments for this software company. You know, it made a lot of sense, but I really didn't know too much about it. So the year went on and I got involved. And today I'm a huge advocate of containers. And look, for me, you know, the biggest reason is they are lightweight and they just work so much easier than VMs, so much smaller. How about you? Yeah, it's actually similar to you, right? It coincidentally, same, same time frame, right? Around 2013, but, but I actually started a little differently. So for me, that journey started with para-virtualization, right? If we think back to it, the idea was similar to containers, right? The idea was that you had a shared Linux kernel um, and you built on top of that with in dedicated virtual environments. So I, I played around with that for a while, got some basic things running around at home. Um, and then really about a couple of years ago, I, I just decommissioned all the hardware, right? There was just no point. And I... And I and moved all that stuff to my NAS, and I could do most of the things that those beefy machines could do on, on a tiny little NAS machine. Um, and like you said, it just it works. So recently, I started deploying more containers to those NAS um, for any apps that didn't come on the on the NAS device. Anything that I found out there, just a great way to run those containers. And, and really, the most awesome part to me is the the reduction in power and space usage. I, I went from at least uh, two two U pizza boxes, uh, you know, big chunky servers with big 900 watt power supplies running all the time, fans on all the time to a little NAS box that's literally like five pizzas slices stacked on top of each other. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And look, listeners, you know, we haven't spoken about this uh, before the show started today. And I run a similar setup at home. I have gone from, you know, one RU, uh, you know, dual Xeon 8, SAS 15k drives consuming, you know, about $5 worth of electricity per day to a NAS running containers as well. You know, they are just so lightweight and they make a lot of sense here. And I've also found, you know, these days, even if from time to time, you know, you need to download a tool that you're running like on your Mac or your Windows PC, often the download will be a Docker container that you can just run. Yeah. So, you know, I was trying to download a WordPress vulnerability scanner. That's part of a specific Kali Linux, uh, a, part of a Linux distribution called Kali Linux. And I can buy, I can download this vulnerability scanner to my Mac, not as an application that I install, but as a Docker container. So, you know, I just, you know, it really starts to click to, you know, to why containers make a lot of sense. So look, for those who are using VMs and managing machines today, how would you suggest for our listeners to make that jump across? First thing I would say is it's something that you should be doing, right? It might seem daunting, it might seem challenging, but it's really something that you should be doing. And it's not that hard once you get over it for the first time. It's really about having an open mind, right? Think about that growth mindset, right? That continue learning for yourself. It's easy to get stuck in our way sometimes when we're just used to doing things the way that we're doing and just continue down that old, you know, that old world path. Um, you know, perhaps maybe it's a it's an old programming language, maybe it's a scripting language you stick to, 
right? Actually, for me, it, it was VBScript back in the days. It, and it's also in the past was VMs, right? I was just kind of stuck in this VM world until I moved to the containers. The point really is you owe it to yourself, I think, right? It, it's really going to help you continue an IT journey. And containers are certainly more relevant today um, than they were in the past. It just continues to be more and more relevant. Um, and you're going to come across it. It's, it's, there's no doubt. So in the past, we've actually covered um, topics like this when we talked about ECS and EKS, but we never really covered that burning question. How do you get started in the world of Docker? Great question. So look, I think you're spot on there. I think we can never afford to stop learning today. IT is constantly changing, be it programming languages or you know, uh, you know, methods of compute from virtual machines through to physical hosts, through to containers, through to serverless. You know, it's understanding the nuances of each, understanding where they're appropriate, and you know, continuing to learn and move forward. You know, that growth mindset. So look, back to what you just said before, you know, let's level set on terminology we're using today. So I think the first thing we need to start with really is an image. Simply put, a container is an image of layered file system that is the basis of a Docker container. So an image kind of like, say, a VMDK if you're from the VMware world or a VHDX if you're from the Hyper-V world. So this image will include all the dependencies that the application requires as well. So it's important to remember that an image doesn't have state, nor would the underlying contents change dynamically. You know, think of it as a stateless vanilla image. Containers are the runtime instance of that image. The container contains a Docker image we just mentioned, an execution environment like Python or Node.js and your application code. Yeah, then any dependencies on top of that you might add too, right? So, so then you, okay, so you got that image, right? The next thing is the Docker daemon. And I think this is really important to understand, right? So the Docker daemon, like many Linux daemons, run the background, right? It's a background process. It's going to manage the containers and any underlying dependencies on a single host. And I think that that's really key there. We'll talk about multiple hosts a bit later, but think about a single host. You have your Docker daemon, and this might be things like bridging maybe to an outside network. Uh, maybe it's managing the storage, uh, or maybe it's just routing the traffic between the different containers that you have. That's really the responsibility of the Docker daemon. Then you have on top of the Docker client, uh, the Docker client, uh, you've probably heard of that before. You're probably using Docker client on a, maybe a single machine like your laptop, or maybe it's a, a single host. But that Docker uh, client is going to talk to the Docker daemon uh, in order to manage your containers. Excellent. So then we have the Docker file. So this is where you write instructions to build your Docker image. So these instructions, you know, can be, you know, they, they are effectively instructions on how to build this image. So, you know, let's just say you are going to have a Docker image that runs WordPress. You know, you might have, you know, apt-get install, you know, the, the LAMP stack before, you know, defining the port to expose and so on here. So, you know, the Docker file is effectively instructions on how to build your Docker image. You've also got Docker Swarm. So Docker Swarm is the name of the standalone native clustering tool for Docker. So Docker Swarm pulls together several Docker hosts. So you might have multiple instances running Docker and exposes them as a single virtual host. So it serves a standard Docker API. So any tool that already works with Docker can transparently scale up to multiple hosts. And Swarm mode you know, typically refers to cluster management and orchestration features embedded in the Docker engine. When you initialize a new swarm, so a cluster or join nodes to a swarm, the Docker engine runs in swarm mode. Yeah, it's important to understand that, that swarm mode there. So now let's jump into container registries, right? We talked about before, when we talked about pulling images from different places, there is public and private registries. Important to keep those in mind. Um, it's a common phrase you'll hear, right? You'll probably hear the phrase public registry very often. Um, there's also the concept of a private registry, and I'm going to get to that in a second here. 
And so really in order to understand the registry, we, we first have to understand the concept of a repository, right? And there are many repositories of container images out there created by people, organizations. Anyone can create a container image and anyone can create a repository to host their images. So we need really a central location that operates kind of like a store or a gateway to all those repositories. Um, and that's what the public container registry is. Uh, it's a public collection of repositories and container images uh, that might be found in the wild. But with some of them, uh, maybe they're already vetted uh, maybe they're already possibly maintained by that registry operator. Docker Hub is a common registry. Our listeners have probably heard those out before. Uh, but there are many other ones out there, including the AWS public container registry as well. So really, regardless of which registry you're going to go to, you'll always want to make sure that those container images are legit and, and that they're going to meet your organization's security needs, uh, maybe any implementation standards that you have, anything else in the organization. So really, for this reason, you have private registries. Those private registries let uh, they'll let us host our vetted containers, any other images that we have, and really present them to our internal users. And that's kind of like the vetted store uh, or marketplace for our internal organization. Great that you pointed that out. You know, uh, last week I was trying to find a tool, you know, that was on Docker Hub. You know, there's five and a half million containers there, that public registry. <laughs> and there was about 10 different containers that would do the job for what I needed. And I think I went through about four of them before, you know, I found one that actually worked, even though, you know, in the description, they all should have worked. So read the reviews yeah. and so on here. But I guess, you know, private registries solve that, you know, as you mentioned, it's, you know, you can host your vetted container images. Okay, so moving on from container registries, we have a task. Now, a task is the atomic unit of scheduling within a swarm. So a task carries a Docker container and the commands to run inside the container. Manager nodes assign tasks to worker nodes according to the number of replica sets in the service. And you've got a task definition. So you have this in, say, ECS. This is effectively the blueprint for your task. You know, it'll specify the name of the task, the revisions, the container definitions, and volume information, so your storage. You've also got sidecars commonly used in Kubernetes deployments. So a sidecar is a utility container in a pod that's loosely coupled to the main application container. So this could include, you know, security tools, logging tools, or any other agents that your app may depend on. One of the things you might hear out there is commonly pods versus nodes. So think of a node as really a physical or virtual machine, right? That's running the instance of that container image uh, or the container engine. And then on the nodes, at least in the Kubernetes world, when you have a set of containers together, those might be referred to as a pod. So just important to remember those two together. I think that really does it with the terminology for today. Um, there's a full list of glossary terminologies posted on AWS. We'll link to those in the show notes. Um, we really suggest anybody coming new into containers really take a thorough read through uh, these glossaries. It really helps you understand some of those foundational terminology um, and really gets out of the way any kind of preconceived notions that you might have just because that terminology is something that you've used somewhere else before. So I highly suggest going through some of those glossaries. All right, Shane, so we went through the terminology. You know, let's get back to how do you actually get started here? I'm going to hand it back to you. Okay. So look, we spoke about before, you know, about getting your hands dirty. And for me, the first thing I'd be doing if you've, you know, fresh to containers is having a play with Docker in a test environment. Now by test environment, this could be your workstation. So, you know, it could be my Mac, my Windows PC, an EC2 instance, or my favorite compute solution, a Raspberry Pi. 
Uh, I'm actually I'm going to jump in here, Shane. Uh, I'll, I'll share with us with our listeners. Really, don't don't be shy. Don't be afraid of, of using Raspberry Pi. Really, the the version three, the version four, they have plenty of power to run some of the basic containers you'll be learning with. Good point there. So this means you'll need to install a Docker engine for EC2 on Linux. It'd be you know something as simple as sudo yum install Docker for a Pi sudo apt-get install docker hyphen ce and for your windows or mac instances you can download the relevant image for your workstation all right Shane, i, I got my pi 4 it's ready on the desk i i've, I've installed the docker agent while you've been talking because I'm, I'm just so excited here now what i'm gonna do this as you're talking <laughs> now so <let's> go. <laughs> okay so look you didn't need to run a docker image now this is just like a hypervisor at the moment with no virtual machines and as mentioned before, Docker images are read-only templates that you build from a set of instructions written in your Docker file. Images define both what you want your packaged application and its dependencies to look and what processes to run when it's launched. The Docker image is built using a Docker file, and I'll get to that shortly. So each instruction in the Docker file adds a new layer to the image with layers representing a portion of the image's file system that either adds or replaces a layer below it. So you really have two options around images. So firstly, you can download an image. And for myself, this is probably the biggest benefit of containers above and beyond their portability and self-contained nature. The vast number of containers that are available on Docker registries, such as Docker Hub and the ECR, Elastic Container Registry. And between these two registries, you know, there's over five and a half million container images available. You know, I was saying shy earlier, my MQTT broker for my home automation is based on a Mosquito MQTT. And it runs on a Docker container. It's 10 meg in size, you know, 10 meg. Two. That's not possible to perform on a virtual machine. A 10 meg file, and that's why containers spawn so quickly because they don't contain the bloat that virtual machines require, you know, the operating system. And they also provide process isolation from other containers running. So hit your favorite search engine and you'll be surprised what can be found. You know, these days, you'll often find many tools are now being packaged as a container and as an end user, I really appreciate the choice. Yeah, it's, that's really a great option, Shane. You know, if, if the application is public, you know, and somebody's already built it, you know, but but one of the things I mentioned in the past, right, there's going to be listeners that that can't get to those public repositories, right? They can't use those things. Maybe they have their own applications that they want to containerize, right? So, so what's the option there? Well, the other option is build your own. And I think that's how I first got started, you know, down the Docker path here. Build your own. Just like downloading an image, it's actually easier than it really seems. So in order to build an application, mentioned before, you need to use a Docker file. Docker file is simply a text-based script of instructions used to create a container image. You create a file, the file is called Docker file, one word. A text document contains all the commands a user could call on the command line to assemble a container image. So let's look shy through the lens of WordPress, the ever popular CMS. If you were to install this on Linux machine, think about all the things you would need to do to your server. You know, what goes into this Docker file? So I've just pulled one up here. So it starts off and it says from Ubuntu 18.04. So we're starting with an Ubuntu image here. We're going to run a command, you know, A2 nmod rewrite. We're going to install PHP extensions we need. So, you know, we're going to then do an app get update, app get install, install a heap of stuff. We're going to set environment variables. We're going to run a curl to pull the latest version of WordPress down. And then we're going to install it and we'll define an entry point in terms of port here. You know, makes a lot of sense here. Think about the steps, you know, I would say listeners, you need to do 
for your application. You know, you will need to get started with a base OS and then you will need to run commands to build those layers on. This is configuration management in essence here. You know, from a Docker file, you can then issue a Docker build command, which will create a Docker image, which will be the compiled version of this Docker file. Thanks for that walkthrough, Shane. Um, so we, we, we've either downloaded the image, right? Or, or we built a container image on our own. Um, we can now run these on the Docker host, right? Correct again. When you run the Docker run command and specify WordPress, Docker uses this file to build the image itself. The Docker file is essentially the build instructions to build the image. The advantage of a Docker file over just storing a binary image is that the automatic builds will ensure you have the latest version available. Now, this is a good thing from a security perspective as you want to ensure you are not installing vulnerable software. So that's it for building the Docker image. But let's say you want to run that image on more than just one server, device, or virtual machine. If you want to take your container skills to the next level, you'll need to dive into orchestration. Yeah, that, that's right, Shane. So earlier we, we talked about running containers on your local machine, then we talked about using Docker Swarm. And, and why would you want to use uh, multiple underlying nodes? So let's explore a little deeper as to why orchestration is so important. And you know, if you go back to uh, episode 55, when we had our peer on, uh, he explained that orchestration was like a Tetris game. Correct. In that game, you know, you're trying to fit blocks of different shapes and sizes into the neatest and most efficient stack you can. You know, when you don't line these blocks up, you end up with lots of wasted space and then it's game over. Contrary, when you fill the slots, things run smoothly. Th thanks for the analogy, Chain. It really helps put this next part into perspective. So when do you ultimately use orchestration? Many times when customers deploy containerized solutions, it's typically more than one container, maybe hundreds or maybe even thousands. You'd want a tool that helps you automate the deployment of your containers across the underlying EC2 instances in the most optimal fashion. And that's where orchestration comes in. Besides placement of those container instances across the underlying infrastructure, orchestration takes care of service discovery, networking between containers, and container health monitoring. So another benefit of using orchestration tools is their declarative approach. Now, in declarative programming, you describe what you want the output to be, you know, usually in JSON or YAML. You know, it's an argument there, you know, what you may prefer. And let the service or tool take care of how to get there. The platform then takes care of deploying that container image to the underlying nodes with the load balancing, routing, and other features you may have added to the deployment in the form of sidecars. Now that we've talked about orchestration, let's talk about what options do customers have to perform this on AWS. Yeah, so if we, if we look across the board in, in, at the AWS services, it's all about choice, right? We want to make sure that customers have options and, and choose the one that best fits for them there. So while, while we're only going to touch on ECS and EKS just due to time constraints today, uh, I really want to remind our customers that these are not the only two options. We're just starting off with these. So we hear from many customers that they choose to start off with ECS primarily because of the simplicity of management. Um, as it makes some of the decisions for them along the way, it helps them rapidly deploy their containers. Other customers, however, will choose EKS uh, because they want the, they want more flexibility Kubernetes. It's a vibrant ecosystem, consistent open source APIs, uh, amongst many other reasons uh, that they might have. Finally, keep in mind that this is not a once and done, you know, set in stone kind of thing. You set it up, you move forward, um, and then you might realize that there's some cases where it makes sense to let the application and team drive the tools uh, that are being used versus the other rounds, right? So you might have a, a one team using ECS, another team might use EKS, or another team might use a different tool. That's totally okay. If you want to dive more into this topic, really suggest you jump into the uh, blog from the show notes. Uh, there's a post by my peer, Deepak Singh, on container orchestration. Uh, I've linked that down in the show notes. We've talked about the orchestration layer. Let's move on to another common area. We have uh, many questions from our customers. 
when do you use containers versus serverless? Great question. So a common question out there is absolutely, when do I use containers versus serverless? Both of these are popular options because they allow the developer to focus on their code and not the infrastructure, you know, value add here. Developers often find tools in these spaces to help them deploy more often and quicker than they did in the past. They can scale out their services as they need to across highly resilient underlying infrastructure without having to think about it. However, while they have their commonalities, serverless and containers have their advantages and disadvantages depending on the workload. When we think about containers, we immediately jump to portability. The container we created or downloaded from a repository has everything it needs to run and operate. That container is also agnostic and can run regardless of the underlying operating system. Containers come in handy when you're breaking down that monolithic application into microservices. You can break off small chunks of the application, develop, test, and reiterate on that part over and over easily with containers. Now, when it comes to serverless, a big benefit is going to be cost. You know, Unlike containers, there's no container or underlying infrastructure that may sit idle. If the functional service you're using isn't being used by your application, you don't get charged for it. You know, pay by the millisecond. And another aspect of serverless is that it further breaks down that microservice into functions and components. You know, this further increases the development team's ability to iterate on smaller components more frequently. And ideally, we want to combine the portability of containers with the pay-as-you-go of serverless. Yeah, that, that's right, Shane, right? If you've used Lambda before, you'll know that it's a great way to upload your code and have it run without having to think about any of the underlying infrastructure. Lambda is really key when we talk about serverless. However, sometimes if your application has many components, it can get difficult to break those out and run them uh, as a Lambda function. So to help you out with this, at reInvent, we announced a, that you can run containers in Lambda. Let's use uh, that example today to dive into this a bit more. We are providing base images for all the supported Lambda runtimes, uh, things like Python, Node.js, Java.net, Go, and Ruby, as well as some other languages, um, so that you can easily add your code and dependencies uh, and then create your own, uh, your own container based on either Alpine or Debian Linux. For custom images, you'll need to add the Lambda runtime API, which allows for custom runtimes to receive uh, invocation events from Lambda and then send responses uh, with data back to the Lambda execution environment. It'll be just like the functions uh, packaged with uh, zip archives in the past. Functions deployed as container images benefit from the same op operational simplicity, automatic scaling, high availability, um, and all the native integrations with many other AWS services. Once you have developed and tested your application, uh, then you're ready to run it Lambda. You'll want to upload it to the Elastic Container Registry. Then within the console, you'll go on to create your function. You'll see a new option for a container image. Uh, which you'll point uh, at that image that you uploaded to the ECR. Presuming that you've tagged your image with the latest tag, which you should, look for that latest tag and then select it. Uh, you'll then be given the option, uh, if you choose, to override some of the parameters or variables or values that are in that container image. When creating or updating the code for a function, the Lambda platform optimizes new and updated container images to prepare and receive invocations. Uh, this optimization takes a few seconds or minutes, depending on the size of your image. After that, the function is ready to be invoked and you can test the function in the console. This really opens up doors tremendously for developers. Um, it's really going to give you another way to deploy your Lambda functions. I really suggest reading another blog post. I'm going to link to that by my peer, um, Danilo Puccia. His post goes into a lot of details. It really goes through the thorough details uh, we mentioned here, as well as um, some example code to get you started too. Yeah, I, you're kind of tongue-tied, lost for words here. I haven't tested this. And initially, you know, the thought that went through my mind was, what about the cold start times? But if you think about what's happening when you execute a Lambda function, we are effectively building a container for you to execute that function in an isolated manner. 
this definitely opens up the doors for developers. You know, it's way to be able to make your containers serverless. You know, fantastic here. Okay, so look, when we think about tools, every developer has their favorite set of tools that they like to use. You know, I used to work with someone who used to use FAR, you know, put FAR into Google. That's a, a method for uh, file system browsing and stuff like that. Uh, you know, everyone's peculiar. So if you're a developer and you're working with containers, what are some of the tools you should know and get your hands dirty on Shy? So I think I'm gonna have to go Google FAR first, but because, you know, I love my storage. You almost you almost derailed me there. So I'm just gonna keep going here and I'll, I'll get back to my storage later. You almost got me off track there. Um, Right. I have my tools. You have your tools, right? We all have our favorite tools. I think that's everybody does that, right? So let's start off with Copilot, right? This is an awesome tool. It went GA in November 2020, just before reInvent. Really, we heard a recurring theme for many, for many developers since uh, ECS has launched in 2015. Developers really want an easier way to launch containers without worrying about um, any underlying boilerplates, anything else that they have to worry about. Um, and then those new to containers told us that it really felt daunting because there were so many concepts that they had to learn. So with this feedback, uh, we launched the AWS Copilot. It's an open source command line interface. It makes it really easy for developers to start building applications on ECS and AWS Fargate. Uh, with Copilot, you'll have an opinionated tool to help you get started with your first application. Uh, you'll pull the pieces together and then build scenarios like pipelines. You might attach a storage. Um, and then Copilot will help even just with the regular operations, right? Things like monitoring and scaling your application. As we walk through this next example, right? Remember that we're not defining individual AWS resources. With Copilot, we're declaring, right? What type of containerized services we want to run. The building blocks such as the VPC, load balancers, et cetera, and anything other things we need, right? Those are all auto-generated to satisfy that architecture. So as an example, you'll start off in the CLI, you'll type in Copilot init, uh, or you might type in Copilot SVC in it, depending on the system that you're on. Copilot then will prompt you for the service type that you'll want to create. You'll put that in. The result is then a declarative manifest file that can be version controlled and holds the most common parameters to configure your services architecture. For example, the load balanced web service pattern abstracts the application load balancers primitives, such as the listener rules, um, any target groups behind two simple fields, HTTP path and HTTP health check. You can also pass in the Docker file and Copilot parses the file for instructions such as health checks or any exposed commands to automatically fill these values in the manifest that is then translated into a CloudFormation template. Um, and then finally, continuous deployment can be a challenging uh, part in container world. Uh, well, with Copilot, you can create multiple deployment environments by running a simple command. Copilot, ENV, INIT, or Copilot Environment Int. The CLI will then ask you to choose the name profile for that account and the region of the environment, enabling you to spread the uh, application across uh, multiple regions and multiple accounts if you need to. Then the copilot pipeline init command will create a code pipeline pipeline for your application. From then on, you can just push your changes to an upstream Git repository and the pipeline will trigger. And to wrap this all up, Copilot can monitor the health of the service and helps you troubleshoot those instances. Uh, you'll have commands uh, like Copilot SVC status and Copilot SVC logs to help you view the health of the service and list any of the logs on the environment. There are several great blogs by many of our peers that have uh, posted some examples and some interactive walkthroughs. Lots of great stuff coming out this year. So really stay tuned and watch the Copilot space. That is amazing. You know, thanks for that dive in there, Shai. Really inspiring. Uh, I actually want to spend a little bit of time and get to know Copilot here. Listeners, you know, let us know what you think about it. 
Let's switch gears to an ECS specific tool called ECS CLI. Now, if you haven't used this tool before, it's a command line tool, you know, hence the name, ECS CLI, command line interface, to simplify creating, updating, and monitoring clusters and tasks from a local development environment. The ECS CLI requires credentials in order to make API requests on your behalf. So it can pull credentials from your environment variables and AWS profile or an Amazon ECS profile. This IAM role is referred to as a task execution IAM role. After you create this role, you need to configure the CLI by running the ECS CLI configure and the cluster configuration parameters you require. You know, quite typical to our other CLIs out there. Once that command finishes, you'll use the ECS CLI up command to launch a cluster. How long it takes will depend on the launch type and whether you choose Fargate or ECS. So, you know, different launch types here. One where you manage and run on EC2 instances or Fargate where we manage these on your behalf. You'll then create the Docker compose file and deploy it to the cluster with the ECS CLI compose followed by, you know, the respective parameters. ECS CLI can come in very handy for a lot of different types of deployments. And there are some great examples, which we'll link in the show notes. And while we won't have time to go into this on today's show, let's talk a little bit about EKS CTL. So it's another tool in the bag for deploying and managing your EKS cluster. So Elastic Kubernetes Service cluster, similarly to what we've just talked about through ECS CLI. Head over to the links in the show notes for some command examples and to get EKS CTL set up on your development machine. Lastly, you know, Docker desktop ECS integration. If you're not deep into Docker or containers, users often find themselves starting with Docker desktop. I know I've got it running here. So you can now build and test your containers locally using Docker desktop and Docker compose and then deploy them auto-magically to Amazon ECS on Fargate. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is awesome. I, th- I think that's, I'm in the same boat as you. I think I liked using sometimes desktop tools and sometimes CLI, so it's awesome to see that integration, right? There's lots of tools out there, right? We're just barely scratching the surface of what's out there. What's awesome is really the ecosystem around containers, right? Think about that. There's so many, many open source tools, scripts, other Swiss army knives out there that can do whatever, right? Many things, but... But what happens if you have an older application, right? Or maybe it's a workload with no pre-built container. What if, what do you do then, right? You, you build it from scratch, right? So if you don't want to do that, right, then the other option is a service called app to container right? Um, there's app to container, or we'll call it A to C just for short here. It, it's a command line tool, and it's going to help you modernize your .NET and Java applications um, and make them into containerized applications. So A to C will analyze and build an inventory of all the applications running on your virtual machine. Uh, this can be on-prem or an AWS account. Um, after you select the application you want to containerize, the A to C uh, will package up that application into an artifact um, and identify dependencies. We'll go into a container image. Um, it then configures the network port- ports and generates an e- the ECS task. Finally, it creates a CloudFormation template that you can deploy or modify if needed. A to C can also be used to pair containers for EKS as well, and even for Java containers too. We'll link lots of examples in the show notes, uh, lots of tutorials for you to go through. For those that are curious, let's walk through a quick example of using A to C uh, for .NET and Windows workloads, because I think this is a fairly common one. Uh, first, you're going you're gonna to install A2C by downloading it and running the uh, PowerShell script. Uh, comes as a PS1 file. Then you'll run the uh, app2container space init, which will ask you for some basic info like the directory path. It's going to ask you for your AWS profile, uh, the S3 bucket that you want to use for extracted context, uh, contents, uh, any permissions that you might want to use to collect metrics as well. 
Uh, and then you'll use the HSC to analyze the application with the command app to container space inventory. It will then output a JSON object for that application that was found. All right, so now you've installed HSC, you've ran the init and inventory commands. You'll want to obviously containerize the application, right? That's why we're here. So the command is slightly different uh, depending on whether you're running A2C on an app server or on a worker machine. Uh, so again, be sure to read the docs thoroughly to understand which command to use here. But you're going to use the, the most common one is going to be app to container space containerize um, or app to container uh, space extract. Then you'll run app to container generate app uh, dash deployment with the respective parameters to package up the application and then uh, into the specified local directory. Now that we've gone through the foundations of containers, let's talk about how you would deploy and manage this all in AWS. We talked about orchestration before. In that space, there's the Elastic Container Service, or ECS, and the Elastic Kubernetes Service, EKS. You'll choose the orchestration tool based on the decision points we talked about. Then you'll choose how you want to deploy these containers. You can leverage ECS or EKS and launch a container on EC2 instances. You can also leverage Fargate, which is a serverless deployment method. And now we've chosen this. We've got the underlying infrastructure scaling and automation is taken care of for you. And finally, we talked about registries earlier. You can host a public or private one with Elastic Container Registry Service or ECR. Of course, you can always launch your own EC2 instances and deploy Docker Swarm or Kubernetes and manage the entire container stack yourself, you know, giving you full control, you know, pros and cons of this. So, you know, understand the benefits you're getting in managing this infrastructure versus, you know, leveraging a service like ECS, you know, that may be or EKS to give you that middle ground or completely going, you know, hands off using Fargate deployment type. So I think we're going to close this one out, right? We went went through containers. We, we covered basic container terminology. We even talked about how to set up your container. We've covered orchestration, containers versus serverless, and then container tools and running containers in AWS. We really just scratched the surface here. I really suggest uh, the container section of the AWS blog to dive deeper on some of these topics and take a look through the show notes if you missed anything. Yeah, look, containers is, you know, it's a very big world here from, you know, you've heard terminology such as sidecars, you know, there's container networking, you know, we've ran multiple episodes before with terminology such as, you know, Istio and, you know, we've talked about container deployment tools. There are a lot of announcements happening in the container space, a lot of announcements on AWS. If you're not using containers today, you know, do yourself a favor, spend 10 minutes today. You know, build that Hello World container or the Hello World equivalent, you know, really get into it. So look, lastly, thanks, Shai, for joining us here today on Tech Chat. And folks, that's it for today. You know, keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email, awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. Join us again next time on a deep dive episode of your choosing. But until next time, bye for now and keep on building. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com.